This episode of the MJ Cast is sponsored by the ridiculously delicious Crack Corn. It's the salty, sweet, ultra premium puff corn that's unlike anything you've tried before. It's small batch made and ships right to your door anywhere in the world. Check out their freshly updated online store with new deals at crackcorn.com slash the MJ Cast. That's crackcorn.com slash the MJ Cast. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I want to see you! <laughs> I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello, and welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm your host, Elise Capron, signing in from Studio San Diego. And today I'm honored to be joined by Howard Bloom, who worked as Michael Jackson's publicist in the 1980s, primarily around the Victory era. Howard grew up as a full blown science nerd who knew nothing about popular music. And yet, in 1976, he founded what would become one of the biggest PR firms in the music industry during the 70s and 80s. He helped build or sustain the careers of more than 100 rock and roll icons, including Prince, Bob Marley, Joan Jett, ZZ Top, Bette Midler, Billy Joel, and, of course, Michael Jackson. Howard is the author of seven books on a range of topics and has been the subject of several documentary films. We have him on the show today to discuss his new book, which has just published this past week, titled Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me, A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll. Howard, welcome to the MJ cast. How are you doing? Terrifically. It's a spring day. It doesn't have any sun, but it's gorgeous. (laughs) And you're calling in from Brooklyn, is that correct? From Park Slope? Brooklyn, yes. That's wonderful. And how are you holding up in this COVID world? Well, I was sick in bed for 15 years and had to survive on the internet. So I'm much better adapted to this than most people. Well, that's good to hear. And congratulations on your book's publication. It's an absolutely beautiful book. Um, I do want to encourage all of our listeners to pick it up. And it is available anywhere that books are sold. And an audiobook will also be coming out, which Howard just told me before we recorded, which is fantastic news. So we'll be watching for that as well. Howard, do you want to just tell me a little bit about what it has been like to have a book coming out during this crisis and the way that's affected you as an author? Well, it's a very hard thing, a very hard slog to establish a book under any circumstances. It's been a very hard slog to establish this. The first review came in about five days ago and was astonishing, utterly astonishing. It talked about great authors and then it said Howard Bloom is beyond a great author and then outlined how delicious and irresistible it found this book. A second review came in that I tried to queue up for you that was particularly heartening to me. I'll tell you why it's heartening after I read you the review. Before picking up Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me, I thought of Michael Jackson as a plastic surgery addict slash superstar slash pedophile who'd sung some awesomely catchy songs. By the time I reached the end, I was grieving with tears in my eyes, the tragic crucifixion 
of a wondrously luminous soul. Thanks, Howard, for luring us to the heart of the star-making labyrinth and guiding us out again. And that's Helen Zuman, who is the author of a book called Mating in Captivity. So there are a few little gratifying things happening. It's just the beginning. We did a, a four-hour bloomathon. That comes from one of the filmmakers who has spent time with me. This person has got 300 hours of film with me. And I thought he was just going to play four hours worth of stuff from his collection on me. No, I, he ended up setting up a platform in which I could deliver a three-hour soliloquy. Wow, fantastic. Yeah, since I love doing soliloquies, that was wonderful. So we'll see. It's just a hard slog. Absolutely. And in case any listeners of our podcast don't know, I work in book publishing. I'm a literary agent. So it is particularly fun to get to talk to you, Howard, about this part of the process. And I have to say, I'm also going through this same thing that you are in uh, watching book publishing really have a hard time and authors tours be canceled. Um, I'm sure you had some events that have been postponed as well. Um, yeah, and that is tough. That is really tough. But so I absolutely sympathize. But I'm glad that we can at least continue on in the podcast world and do what we can to talk about your great work. Me too. <laughs> Thank DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency for inventing the internet. <laughs> Yes, thank you. Our lives would not be the same without it, would they? <laughs> not at all. Well, so let's go ahead and dive into some questions here, Howard. I'm excited to chat with you. So here at the MJ cast, we love to go back to our special guests origin stories. And you have a particularly unusual background coming from the science world, which you were immersed in from a very young age. Can you tell us a bit about your childhood and growing up? At least for God knows what reason. I grew up alone. My parents didn't have time for me. My mother had to work. My father was drafted for World War II, so he wasn't around. My mother had to take care of the tiny store he had just started, so she wasn't around. If she were smart, she would have left me with a babysitter, which would have meant she'd leave me with somebody whose job was to pay attention to the baby. She didn't. She left me with a cleaning woman who locked me in a, a windowless corridor with a hardwood floor, and you register that when you are two years old and you have your hands on the wood, the coldness of the wood, you register. And the fact that the corridor is lightless and dark, you register, especially when you're looking through a baby gate, a cage, and you're looking toward a distant window that is filled with sun and you can't get to it. And the babysitter acts as if you don't exist. So I came out of that in God knows what shape, when I got, was exposed to other kids for the first time at the age of four, they wanted to have nothing to do with me except to beat me up or to chase me around the block or to in some way humiliate me. So I grew up without other kids and without parents and basically without humans. And then at the age of 10, a book appeared in my lap, in my family's living room, a book I had not seen before. You know how when you're a little kid, you know the location of every single book in the house because the books don't move around. And this is a book I didn't know the location of. I don't know where it came from. And it said, the first two rules of science are these. These rules would turn out to have everything in the world to do with how much I loved Michael Jackson. Rule number one, the truth at any price, including the price of your life. And it gave the example of Galileo. And it told the story all wrong. It said Galileo was willing to go to the stake to defend his truth. 
That's not correct. It would take me 30 years to learn that Galileo, in fact, said everything he'd ever written was wrong in order to get house arrest from his friend, the Pope. But the story that I was told of an utterly courageous Galileo willing to die for his truth, I needed that at the age of 10. It galvanized me. And rule of science number two, look at things right under your nose as if you have never seen them before, and then proceed from there. Look for things that you see all the time, but you don't see that are invisible to you and to everybody you know, and then proceed from there. And it gave the example of Anton von Leeuwenhoek, the manufacturer, the creator of the first microscope. Well, Elise, all of a sudden, I had humans in my life. I had Galileo and Anton von Leeuwenhoek, and they couldn't beat me up or chase me around the block or even say no to me for a simple reason. They were dead. So two guys reached out across 350 years and saved me. And those two rules have been the foundation of my life ever since. So I was saved by two people who've been dead for 350 years. And I have never had kids for a reason. My books are my kids, and my obligation is to reach out to the next kid 350 years from now and give him a sense of a reason for being. And Michael would turn out to be the living incarnation of those first two rules of science, something I never expected to see in my life. Wow, I love that, Howard. That's fantastic. I mean, you came out of a situation that was so tough as a child, I cannot imagine what you went through. And you found these visionaries who became your family in a lot of ways. And that happened through books and through science and through the um, experience of awe, right? And would eventually lead to everything you would you would do later on. So let's talk a little bit about how you did end up, and I know there were many steps to this process, but how you did eventually make your way into the world of rock and roll. How did that happen? Well, it was very peculiar. First of all, at the age of 10, I got into microbiology and theoretical physics. Uh, at the age of 12, I was taken seriously. Can you believe this? Elise, I was taken seriously in the field of theoretical physics. When I was 16, I worked at the world's largest cancer research facility, and I came up with the theory of the beginning, middle, and end of the universe that predicted something called dark energy, which would be discovered to be absolutely real 38 years later. But the big deal really is that when I was 12, I realized I was an atheist. I didn't believe in God. And I put off admitting it to myself until my bar mitzvah was over because I couldn't resist a party, the first one I'd ever really be invited to, and presents. But as soon as I finished the two months of writing thank you notes to people, I was able to confess openly that I was an atheist. But a month, just a few weeks after that, came the Jewish high holidays. And somehow my parents got me into a suit to take me to the high holiday services, and somehow they got me into their car but when it came to getting out of the car, I said no, because I didn't believe in this crazy religion of my parents. And my parents finally ended up trying to drag me out of the car by my ankles. So there my parents were clawing at my ankles. I was holding on to the sturdy American-made door frame of our blue Frasier four-door automobile. I realized there are no gods in the heaven. There are no gods under the earth. But there are gods in this scene. They're in my parents. If they are in my parents at a passionate level, then certainly they are in me. One of my scientific jobs became to find the gods inside of us. 
to do something my friend Robin Fox, the founder of the anthropology department at Rutgers University, calls participant observer science. That science where you become a part of the phenomena that you're studying. If you are studying the ecstatic religious experience, which is what I was after at the age of 13, you have to experience those ecstasies or you cannot really understand them. So I set off on this quest for the gods inside. When I got out of grad school, I had fellowships in what's now called neuroscience at four different universities. Grad school looked like Auschwitz for the mind. Here I was fascinated by the ecstatic experience and especially how the ecstatic experience somehow forms the forces of history. And it does. And how close was I ever going to get to the ecstatic experience, giving paper and pencil tests to 22 college students in exchange for a psychology credit? I was going to get nowhere near the phenomena that to me was the most fascinating pursuit of my life. So I dropped out. I didn't accept my fellowships. And I started a commercial arts studio because I had been kidnapped into editing the literary magazine at NYU. And I had turned it into an experimental graphics and literary magazine. And I had a little group of artists I've now felt responsible for who were starving, who were about to be thrown out of their apartments, who were about to have their electricity cut off. And I thought they're so brilliant. If I just take their portfolio out for two weeks, I'll get them enough work to pay the rent and pay for the electricity. It didn't work out that way. I hadn't sold anything at the end of two weeks. And I stuck with it. And we became the largest avant-garde commercial art studio on the East Coast. It was called Cloud Studio. And I regarded that as a periscope position, a position from, you know, the periscope on a submarine allows you to look around and a, a way to look around in the field of popular culture that I had no place in because when I was a kid, that was the culture of the kids who used to beat me up. I wanted nothing to do with it. I grew up listening to Rachmaninoff and Beethoven and Bartok and Stravinsky and people like that. So I was looking for the dark underbelly where new myths and movements are made. I was looking for the churning heart that takes William James. When I was 14, I heard there was a book called The Varieties of the Religious Experience. Well, at that point, I'd been on the hunt for the varieties of the religious experience for over a year which is a long time when you're a kid. So it took me four months to track the book down. We didn't have Amazon in those days, and Buffalo is not a book-rich city. But I tracked it down, and it was as if William James, the founder of American Psychology, had said, look, I'm going to show you seven extraordinary ecstatic experiences had by people who believed that these were religious experiences. I do not have the tools in my time to understand these things. You will come along 60 years, 50 years later, and you will have tools I never had. So this is what I am leaving to you. I'm leaving these seven examples on a laboratory workbench for you. But there was one thing that James said that was powerfully important. And he said that things that could be regarded as psychopathological in the hands of certain people are the engines of history. Exactly how I felt at the time. And the art studio allowed me, to, it allowed me to trip into an accident. One day I arrived at the office of an underground fashion magazine that was bankrolled by Baron Woolman, who had bankrolled Rolling Stone. I got off the elevator with my vinyl portfolio, my art portfolio in my left hand, intending to lay the portfolio on a desk 
and show it to the gorgeous female editors I had just encountered. And instead, their jaws dropped and they looked at my clothes. And I was co-designing my clothes with a woman named Susan Harris. So I was wearing something you've never seen before and never seen since in your life, a batik jumpsuit with a great big belt and a pouch hanging from it, a leather, custom-made leather pouch. That's great. <laughs> and they never gave me a chance to open the portfolio. They said, where did you get those clothes? And I explained my partnership with Susan Harris. And they said, do you have more of these? And I said, yes, of course, I've got a whole closet full of them. And they said, could you write this up for us? Well, writing is a vital part of my science. Albert Einstein, when I was 12 years old, reached out through the pages of a book he'd written on the theory of relativity when I was 12 and grabbed me by the front of my shirt and put his nose up to mine and said, schmuck, listen up. If you want to be a genius, it's not enough to come up with a theory only seven men in the world can understand. To be a genius, you have to be able to come up with that theory and then explain it so clearly and so deliciously that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand it. So Albert Einstein had told me when I was 12 years old, through the pages of a book, if you want to be an original scientific thinker, you must be the best writer you possibly can. So I had been obsessed with my writing, and I really wanted to start writing for magazines. So I wrote an article on this outfits that I had and how they're a liberation. Men are, are somehow convinced to voluntarily tie a noose around their neck every day before they go to work. They go to work in a suit jacket that doesn't allow them arm movement. You know, if you're walking down the street and, and you try to catch a poor falling squirrel tumbling down from a tree, you can't lift your arms up to catch it. You can only get your arms about this far. How in the world do people subject themselves to this kind of bodily imprisonment? So when I turned in that article, they started assigning me more articles. And, and before long, I'd written 175 articles. So I was a contributing editor. And one of the other contributing editors said, I'm starting a new magazine. It's called Natural Lifestyles. I want you as a contributing editor for me, too. So there I was writing my tail off, which meant getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning, totally naked, going to a giant Remington manual typewriter. You had a fight with the keys of that machine, Elise, <laughs> in order to type anything. And typing until 8 o'clock in the morning, then eating breakfast and putting on my Susan Harris outfit and going in to run the art studio and then coming home at night and sitting with a pot of coffee at the Remington typewriter again until 11 o'clock. And I was being exhausted by the routine. I landed my artists an account for a new magazine, to art direct a new magazine. And it was a magazine that uh, the, the publisher had seen a magazine coming out of Harvard that only came out once a year, but sold out on newsstands in less than two hours all across America. So he'd gone to Boston and he'd offered two of the kids who turned out that magazine the possibility of living in New York as fairly wealthy men and turning out the magazine on a monthly basis. And the magazine at Harvard that sold out was called The Lampoon. And the magazine that the Maddie Simmons was putting together was The National Lampoon. And we were given the job of art directing that magazine. There was an artist in the studio whose work I never liked. I thought it wasn't art. 
but I was forced into having him because my lead artist said, well, if you get me, you have to take him too. Back in the days when he was being thrown out of his apartment. So I had said yes. Well, that artist went to the other artists and said, look, we're getting this giant check every month now. Why should we give Howard his percentage? Let's just vote him out of the studio. And he used that maneuver to get me out of the studio and to take over the art direction of the magazine, at which he was incompetent. So the first seven issues of the National Lampoon are terribly art directed. When our studio was completely capable of doing a brilliant job if he hadn't pulled off this maneuver. So there I was without my art studio. And I was covering a parapsychology convention one day for natural lifestyles. Wherever I went, I had a pad in my hand because I have no memory. I have the memory of a decorticated flea. <laughs> so I really have to observe details and write them down or I would never be able to remember them. And somebody saw me with the notepad in my hand and walked up to me and said, would you like to edit a magazine? Not release. If I edited a magazine, that meant I could write during the day and not have to get up at six o'clock in the morning and not have to write until 11 o'clock at night. So I said, yes. Now in those days, we didn't have a simple device we take for granted today, Google. So there was no way when I was given an appointment with the publisher of the magazine, I could find out what his background was and what magazine we were going to talk about. Can you imagine that? <laughs> no. In these, these days, it's inconceivable. So I walked into this astonishing office. I, I walked into the office complex and on my right, was a converted storage closet in which two editors were packing up their things because they, they had quit. There was an office, that was on my right, and there was office, an office to my left, and when the door opened, it was astonishing. It was a seven-window office on the East River at a building called One UN Plaza on the UN property with a view that went all the way up the river for five miles and all the way down the river for five miles. It was breathtaking. And I sat with the publisher and he told me what the name of his magazine was. It was Circus. And it turned out that it wasn't about clowns and elephants. It was about rock and roll. And I knew almost nothing about rock and roll. Yes, I had helped establish an entirely new radio format called Progressive Radio, Rock Radio, Album Radio. I had done that. My art studio had done all of the art for ABC's 7FM stations as they were taking this astonishingly risky move of changing their format from Top 40 to Progressive Radio. And they were the first to do this. I knew a little bit from that, but I knew just about nothing. Look, when I was a kid, when I was 11 years old, I was tossed out of the Boy Scouts for incompetence and Morse code. And if they hadn't tossed me out for incompetence at Morse code, they could have tossed me out for incompetence at not time. I was just generally incompetent at Boy Scouty type things. Uh, by the way, I've never heard of another kid being thrown out of the Boy Scouts before. <laughs> me either. Well, then after my freshman year at NYU, I was looking for a writing job. I went through the New York Times. I listed every single employment agency that had a job in editorial. Um, there were 98 of them. I called the first 97. And they all said, no, I'm sorry. And I got to the 98th and they said, we think we have something for you. And they sent me out to a job writing for the Boy Scouts of America when I had been tossed out. So I wrote their stalking and tracking manual. I wrote their camouflage manual. 
I wrote a book called 10 Steps to Organize a Boy Scout Troop, which you use if you're trying to organize a Boy Scout troop in a town that's never had one before. And my first assignment was to radically, to totally rewrite the Boy Scout Handbook chapter on, of all things, masturbation. Oh, dear. (laughs) Now, I can't find my way into a forest, much less out of one. But if I'm teaching you how to stalk and track, I want to do it so effectively that a bunny rabbit that you're sneaking up on doesn't know you're there until you're rubbing noses with it. So I operate on the principle of if I love my audience, and I must, and if I can do my research, then I can do everything in my power to uplift, upgrade, and empower my audience. So it didn't matter what I was writing about as far as I was concerned, as long as I could love the audience. And so I was made, uh, basically, Jerry Rothberg, the publisher's question was simple. Can you give me a magazine in two weeks when I'm due to go to the publisher? And sometimes, I don't know if this has happened to you, but every great once in a while, you know something. You don't know how you know it. And I said, yes. Now, all I had done at that point with magazines was art direct and edit and totally produce two literary magazines at NYU that won two National Academy of Poets prizes and created an absolute ruckus, not just on campus, but in the art director community. The art directors magazines like Look, which was a huge, glossy, gorgeous magazine, called me for an an appointment. He wanted to pick my brain after he saw the magazine. The art director at the Evergreen Review, which was the leading bohemian magazine in the world, made the same call. And the art director of Boy's Life had made the same call. So aside from producing those two magazines, no, I had no experience. How I could answer that question with absolute certainty, if I can give you a magazine in two weeks, when it normally takes four weeks, and when you're asking me to replace the two editors across the hall who are leaving, I gave him a magazine in two weeks. I studied like a madman to figure out how to attain the sales that the publisher wanted to attain and came back to him roughly 10 months later and said, if you give me access to your sales figures so I can run simple correlational studies, I will increase the sales of your magazine. Again, something you know that you have no real reason for knowing, but you know it anyway. And he gave me access to the sales figures, and I gave him a new, an entirely new formula that broke every rule he had ever had. And we increased certain circulation 211% in the next 12 months. And one day, Chet Flippo, Chet was one of the founding editors at Rolling Stone. He had founded Rolling Stone's East Coast office. Chet Flippo sent me a great big manila envelope by Messenger with six typed pages in it. And I read the type pages and it was about a little guy in a converted broom closet, a converted storage closet, working at another Remington manual typewriter who had turned straw into gold, who had, in Chet's words, who had invented an entirely new magazine genre, the heavy metal magazine. And eventually I would go on to found a PR firm. Now, how would I know about PR? I knew about PR because I had publicists calling me and sending me material all the time. And I knew what worked, and I knew what didn't work. And so I founded my own PR firm, but you know me, I'm an outsider. I'm always an outsider to everything, ever since I was locked behind that baby gate. So I didn't know the rituals of the industry. I didn't know the the industry's way of going about things, and I couldn't have cared less, Elise. 
All I wanted to do was get the job done and get it done effectively. And I was on a search for soul. I was on a search for the dark underbelly where new myths and movements are made. And that's when I went on a soul hunt and began to find some of the most astonishing souls in the world and utterly retrain them in how to get themselves across. So they look, if you came to me as a potential client, I would say to you, Elise, if you expect me to fashion an artificial mask for you, if you expect me to create an image and then to claim with a cigar in my hand and sitting here like a guy in a plaid suit, I'm going to make you a star. I'm going to get you an appointment with my best competitor within the next two hours. I'll pick up the phone right now. If you're going to work with me, you have to understand that music is not about an exchange of pieces of plastic. It is not about an exchange of downloads, money. It is an exchange of human souls. And if you let me study you for a month so I can begin to comprehend you in a way you may never have been comprehended before, and then if you will give me anywhere from one to three days alone with no intercessors, no managers, no husbands, no wives, nobody but you and me in the room, I will do the following for you. I will find your fucking soul. And what do I mean by that? When you sit down at two in the afternoon in front of a blank computer screen to write a lyric, you know with absolute certainty you cannot write one. You have no idea of how you've ever written one in the past. And by four o'clock, there is often a lyric in front of you. Something in you wrote that lyric. I call it the gods inside your soul. My job is to find the you that wrote that lyric. And then when you go on stage, you see the pupils of the audience dilating. You see their eyes growing wide. You see their faces melting. You see them melting into a giant amoebic blob of energy, audience energy. And that amoebic blob reaches a pseudopod out to you and connects with you. And the energy of that audience, whether it's 700 people or 70,000 people, goes through you as if you were an empty pipe and goes up to some place around here and is utterly transmogrified and flows back to the audience and produces even more amazement in their faces, which channels even more of their energy to you. And you have an out-of-body experience. It's as if you are on the ceiling watching all of this take place. You are watching yourself be danced like a puppet, like a marionette, by something far, far bigger than you ever know in ordinary life. And when you get off stage, you are an empty pipe, just having contained 70,000 souls. It takes you an hour to come back. My job is to find the gods inside you that dance you on stage. My job is to find the soul in you that danced you on stage and to show you how to get it across to your kids, to get it across to your audience. And why is that important? I used to preach to my artists once I had already done all of this work with them. You don't just owe your audience your songs. You owe your audience your life. Now, I didn't know what that meant, Elise. It's, again, a truth you know, and you have no idea of how you know it, and you don't even, you don't even have a way to explain it. But after 15 years of processing this, it turns out, look, I, if you're Joan Jett, I'm going to go into an, uh, an empty, dark room with 3,500 slides on you from your latest photo shoot. 
and a tiny magnifying glass, and I'll turn on one light so that I can see the slide. And I will deliberately pick pictures that young guys, 12 years old, who are just encountering their sexuality for the first time, are going to put up on their walls and masturbate to, which means you are going to become a trellis on which these kids grow. And they are not going to just grow on your songs. They are going to grow on your physical stance, what you convey with your muscular tone and on the story of your life. That's how you owe your audience your song. So that's the way I conducted business. And it turned out to be astonishingly successful. It absolutely sounds like it. Howard, I love the passion you bring to all you have done. You embrace everything with such gusto and with such authenticity. I absolutely love it. Let's take our first break to chat for a minute about Crack Corn, the ultra premium puff corn that's been our sponsor this season. They say it's ridiculously delicious, and that is definitely true. I can vouch for that myself. I'd say it's also something totally new and surprising. It is unlike any snack I've tried before. It's naturally gluten-free, it's small batch made, and it's a surefire hit as a salty sweet treat for friends and family. But you guys, it doesn't matter how much I love crack corn. It's really about what you, our listeners, think. Seeing as though this is Crack Corn's third episode with us, many of our listeners have now had the chance to try it for themselves. And I am genuinely pleased to hear that they are absolutely loving it. I'm even hearing that some of them are already repeat buyers. I'm not surprised. You guys, this stuff is amazing. And here's the update for you from the folks over at Crack Corn. They're a U.S.-based company, and of course, we have listeners from all over the world. In fact, after just the first two episodes they've done with us so far, they have been blown away by how far-reaching our audience actually is. My personal thanks goes out to each and every one of our listeners for that. You guys mean so much to us. Crackcorn has seen orders from our listeners all throughout Europe, Asia, the U.S., Canada, Australia, and more. That certainly goes to show how global our podcast community is. And of course, that's all thanks to the man himself, the king of pop, Michael Jackson. Anyway, because of that, Crackcorn has been studying up on global shipping and has just reconfigured their online store so that people everywhere can get ridiculously delicious Crackcorn at a better value, no matter where they are. Now, shipping is included. And of course, the MJ Cast listeners always get the absolute best deal with an extra special thank you in the box. So head on over to crackcorn.com slash the MJ Cast. That's www.crackcorn.com slash the MJ Cast. And be sure to check out those new deals. Again, crackcorn.com slash the MJ Cast. Thank you, Ridiculously Delicious Crackcorn, for sponsoring the MJ Cast. Now let's head back over to our chat with Howard. So Howard, you've really given us some amazing insight into your personal approach as a publicist in the music world. Can you tell us, just for listeners who don't know about the role of a publicist, when people would hire you on, what were their expectations? Was it mostly about getting articles published about them? What was the goal of bringing you onto the team? Well, the goal of bringing me onto the team was to get as much media attention as humanly possible. My competitors felt comfortable delivering six good stories to you a month. I felt uncomfortable delivering anything less than 60 stories to you a month. And I preferred to deliver 120 stories about you a month. Stories include stuff in the print media, stuff online these days, television and radio. 
I had an office, a staff that I had trained in doing this, and it was highly unusual. Nobody else tried to get you this quantity of publicity. But my task was to look at your career, see what you had done well, and see where there were problems, and then to build a career strategy for you. I looked at your situation of your manager, I looked at what your manager knew and what your manager didn't know, and I filled in for the things your manager didn't know. And that was really the secret to establishing people like Joan Jett, who'd been turned down by 26 record companies and didn't seem to have a chance of making it. Prince, who he had a problem, he was black. And at the record company, you were tossed over to a black staff if you were black. That was just automatic, and the white staff never touched you. And I fought for years to break down that color barrier in the record companies. Billy Idol was about to become a two-hit wonder. And I basically saw his manager's strengths and weaknesses and filled in for all the weaknesses and made his manager look like a complete manager and put together a career strategy that established Billy as a permanence, not just a two-hit wonder. I caught another two-hit wonder before he could fall, John Mellencamp. And, and he was one of the most remarkable people I've ever met with in my life. Yeah, in your book, I know you put John Mellencamp up there with Prince and Michael Jackson as the most awe-inspiring um, musicians you worked with. That's, that's incredible. So that's, that's what I really did. In other words, my staff delivered a ton of publicity. And I stayed on top of every single campaign. Mondays were dedicated to meetings with my account executives to go over every single campaign and see what had been accomplished and where it needed to go next. But my real task was to see the big picture of your career and to correct problems like John Mellencamp about to disappear forever and Billy Idol about to disappear forever. I do want to lead our conversation into Michael Jackson <laughs> um, and topic of interest to our listeners. Um, but all this has been great in terms of the context of how you led up to your years of working with Michael and his brothers as well. So getting into this topic, um, it would be great to hear a little bit about what your views were of Michael Jackson and the Jackson family prior to working with them. Well, prior to working with them, I didn't have much of an impression of them at all. I hadn't been a fan of their music. I hadn't followed Michael's career at all. But Michael, all of a sudden in 1983, became absolutely the biggest phenomenon in popular culture. He became a phenomena that was the equivalent to the Beatles and Elvis Presley all added together. It was astonishing. I was awed by what he had done. And I saw the stories coming out about him and I started to get calls from the manager the brothers had hired to manage them. And for four months they called and I said, no, I'm not interested. And I said, no, I'm not interested for a very simple reason. Michael was so huge, so absolutely enormous, that I told them, if you get a talking dog that can say Michael Jackson on the telephone, he'll get covers on any magazine that he wants in North America or the world. And I don't do that kind of thing. I do crusades. I do impossible things. And this is easy. I don't do easy. And they, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. And they kept calling. And finally, they called and they said, the brothers are coming into town and they want to meet you. Now, Elise, 
I didn't grow up, as you know, among humans. And as a consequence, I didn't know human rituals. But I had heard this phrase, a Yiddish phrase, basically. If you want to be a mensch, if you want to say no to somebody, to be a mensch, you have to say no to their face. Well, being a mensch is very important to me. You know, being honest and a person that you can rely on and a person who works from the deepest possible sources of authenticity. Um, so I had to say yes. And I went to the Helmsley Palace to one of the top two floors and went to the door I'd been told to go to. And I was completely prepared to tell the Jacksons why I was not interested in working with them. And then the door opened what seemed like two inches. And all of a sudden, my mind was changed because I saw four of the most decent, honest people you've ever seen in your life. And they were literally up against the wall. Remember, there was an old ad campaign that had a guy sitting in a chair and he has long hair and they've obviously got some sort of super fan on him with the wind going at 120 miles an hour and he's blown back up against the seat and his hair is blown back horizontal parallel with the ground. That's what the brothers looked like to me. And I knew there was a form of trouble here and it was a deep trouble and it was a trouble that nobody could articulate. So I walked into that room and I said, yes. I said, you've got me. There's some sort of a crusade here. You've got me. And at the end of the meeting, it was a midnight meeting of all things on a Saturday night. And Saturday and Sunday were my hardest working days of the week because those were days when I could go over every single campaign without the phone ringing and interrupting me. I could concentrate. And I did this on a normal nine to, well, nine to 10 schedule. So taking a meeting on a Saturday night at midnight was going to be profoundly disruptive to my work. But when we finished the meeting, I can't tell you how warm the feeling was in that room how much we came to love each other in such a short amount of time. And the brothers crowded around me, giving me their private home numbers. And Randy said, you start tomorrow at 10 o'clock. <laughs> well, this was two in the morning. Tomorrow at 10 o'clock was eight hours away, just enough time to catch some sleep. So that was it. And finding out what that malevolent force was that I could feel in that room took me six months. It took me six months because Something was destroying the Jacksons. Something was deliberately destroying the Jacksons. And since I read, if you were anywhere in the industry, I read about you every week in the trade magazines. And I should have known it in the days when I was saying no. Why? Because the first major PR effort for the upcoming Victory Tour, which is gonna be the first tour in several years to bring together the brothers, complete with their father, to bring the whole family together, was a story in Rolling Stone in November about a press conference held at the Tavern on the Green, a flamboyantly dramatic location in Manhattan with tons of trees surrounding the place and little tiny white Christmas lights in all the trees, so it looks like a fairyland. And in that press conference, Don King had held forth, and he had held forth as if he were Michael Jackson, as if he had sung every song and done every video that Michael had ever conceived. And it was hideous, because Don King has murdered somebody. Don King 
had somebody in Cleveland, I think it was, owed him $160, and he knocked this person to the ground and then kicked him to death. So the very first story was about Don King's homicide. That did not reflect the Jacksons, not at all, but it began to throw an evil cast of some kind over the whole tour and over Michael and his brothers. Something else happened. The next story to come out of Rolling Stone was a story in which uh, an investigative reporter named Michael Goldberg said that he had gotten his hands on contracts that the Jacksons uh, were circulating among the people who were competing to be the promoters for their tour, and that these contracts were predatory. The Jacksons were going to charge $30 per ticket in a day when most tickets were $12.50. And I wouldn't discover why they were asking $30 a ticket until a long time later in a very crucial meeting with Michael. But the interpretation that Michael Goldberg gave to this was ticket prices were going to be so high because the Jackson brothers have a very high rolling lifestyle. And now that Michael was out on his own, they no longer had a source of income. So this whole tour was designed as a vampirical, predatory tour to suck as much money out of Michael's fans as was possible because this was the brother's last shot to make a lot of money. Look, I was very close to the brothers. I can tell you that is so false. So false that it's astonishing. And I should have seen that somebody was setting the brothers up. And my suspicion, well, it took six months to figure the following out. It's really very simple. There is a guy in the industry, the music industry, who is brilliant. I knew how to make careers happen. And I did it over and over and over again. Most managers in the record industry have one lucky accident. And they think on the basis of that accident that they can do it again. But they never can. Bill O'Coin's lucky accident was Kiss. And then he didn't know how to deliver for any of his other acts, except when he brought me in and I could do the missing management stuff for Billy Idol. Tommy Mottola had one lucky accident. Hall and Oates. He signed tons of other clients, imagining that he could do the same for them. No, he was never able to do it again. But there was one other person in the music industry who knew how to make stars. And he was brilliant at it. But he had a reputation as a truly malevolent human being. His publicist in private used to call him the poison dwarf. Walter Yatnikoff, the president of CBS Records, in his autobiography, says there was only person, one person in the industry who was a bigger schmuck than I was. I compiled about 18 pages of these extraordinarily negative comments about this genius, this absolute genius. Now, in Sherlock Holmes, there is a genius bad guy, a genius source of evil. And to show how incredibly brilliant he is, you never know he's there. He's invisible. This person setting up the Jacksons had the brilliance to be invisible. So the first thing I had to do, and it took me three months, was to get a gag order on King. Every time he spoke, he's a lovely man when he's not kicking the shit out of you. He really is a charming, charming human being. And he's talented. 
he took an industry that was dead, boxing, absolutely dead, and he turned it into a new form of theater and revived it. So the man is brilliant, but he's killed somebody. And, and that is a big negative. So it took three months taking a chance with my life. I Look, Elise, remember, the first rule of science is the truth at any price, including the price of your life. I don't give a damn about putting myself in physical danger, period, as long as what I'm doing is true. So we got Don King muzzled. And then I had to figure out who was doing all this evil stuff, leaking these contracts. You have to know something about contracts. When you sit down with somebody and you have a meeting and it's wonderful and two of you see absolutely eye to eye and you're looking forward tremendously to working together and you turn it over to your lawyers to write a contract, the most astonishing thing happens. Your lawyers write a predatory document. Your lawyers write a document that treats the other person as if he's a thief, a con man, and a murderer. And they're protecting you against every form of thievery, con manery, and murdery that can be inflicted on you. And you have to totally rewrite that contract. And the Jacksons, I saw the Jacksons physically rewriting these contracts. But if you leak the raw contract, the very first contract the lawyers produce, it sounds like highway robbery. It sounds awful and appalling. Here's how the press works. The press are a domino stack. You know, hit the first domino and all the other dominoes fall. But there's another metaphor, and it's just as useful, if not more so. And it comes from Thomas Carlyle, the great English social commentator of the early 1800s. And Thomas Carlyle was looking at the rock critics of his day. In his day, they were the people who reviewed books and especially reviewed plays, which was really the major popular art form in those days. And Carlyle gave the story of a friend of his in Germany in the days before naturalists had a name, who was out in a field. If you've ever walked near farmer's fields, there is very often a narrow black lane in between cypress trees or cedar trees, some sort of tall trees. And it's very narrow. So if you were to go on a date with a boyfriend and you were walking through the lovely meadows, if you tried to hold hands, it would be very difficult because you have to go in single file. The path is so narrow. At first, I didn't know when I first saw these paths. I had no idea of what, what they were, where they came from. But it turns out they come from sheep. And sheep walk in single file. That's why the path is so narrow. And sheep follow a lead sheep. So this friend of Thomas Carlyle's in Germany, another author, had decided to experiment. He took his walking stick. He stuck it out in front of the lead sheep. And the lead sheep jumped over it. Then he withdrew his walking stick, so there was nothing to jump over anymore. And 1,999 sheep all jumped at that spot. Why? Because the lead sheep had jumped at that spot. And the press operates in the same way. If they read something in Rolling Stone, or if they read, in those days at least, or if they read something in the New York Times, they all repeat what they have seen in the New York Times, Rolling Stone, and in those days, Village Voice was another lead sheep. Well, there was somebody leaking these contracts who knew the lead sheep approach and was able to pick a lead sheep at Rolling Stone and do the leaking to him so that what he said would ripple throughout the press. And in fact, it not only rippled through the press, it rippled across time. It stuck with the Jacksons, well, for the rest of Michael's life. 
in one form or another. And there was only one person in the industry who knew how to do this. And it turns out he had at that point and probably still does have a right-hand man. And his right-hand man was the son of somebody called Lee Salters. And Lee Salters was the founder of the best PR firm I had ever seen. I learned lessons from that PR firm, Salters and Roscoe. And Larry Salters is not anywhere near as bright as his father was, not anywhere near as creative as his father was. Nonetheless, he knew his father's lore. And he inherited from his father some extraordinary contacts among the lead sheep in the music business. So my guess and plus, according to books like Hitman, the invisible villain, if he sees something he wants, he causes trouble. He knows it will produce an opening for him. And Michael was the biggest thing in this man's life, period. And he wanted a piece of it. So my guess is that he had his right-hand man who knows exactly how to work the press and has the right contacts to do it, leak these contracts in order to make trouble so that he could get in on the tour. And in fact, he ended up getting himself a $500,000 deal as a tour consultant. Now, that's pocket change these days. It's not pocket change to you and me, but in industry terms, it's pocket change. In those days, that was a lot of money. So he started a ball rolling. And then something else happened. When the tour began, um, when we threw our first press conferences, they were press conferences unlike any I had ever thrown in my life. We had 3,500 people at our press conference in New York, and we had 3,500 people, these are journalists, all of them, who knew there were this many journalists. We had 3,500 at our press conference in LA. It was astonishing. And I, I was out on every tour date, and I would roam backstage with a pad in my hand, taking notes on everything that made this date different from other dates. And then, you know, the press boxes that they have for football games that hold 200 press people with all the facilities to put your laptop down and take notes. Well, we had a press conference for 200 press people every night when the tour was over. So I could tell them all the things that had been unique about that night. And one of the press people traveling with us told me the following story. The Herald American always sells 20,000 papers less than the Boston Globe. Well, one day the publisher of the Herald American came into the newsroom and said, we're going to do a Michael Jackson cover tomorrow. And every single person in that room said, no, we are not. We are legitimate journalists. We cover the news. We are not a celebrity rag. We are not a tabloid. We are not the National Enquirer. And the publisher said, you're going to have a Michael Jackson cover tomorrow and walked out. So they put a Michael Jackson cover on the newspaper the next day. Remember, they undersold the Boston Globe by 20,000 papers every day. On that day, they outsold the Boston Globe by 30,000 papers. So the publisher came back down to the newsroom, looked at the new music journalist, said, you, I'm giving you your own office with your own secretary. From now on, I want a Michael Jackson story every day. And seeing that, the publisher of the Boston Globe walked into the newsroom, picked on his music person, and gave him a secretary in a private office to turn out a Michael Jackson story every day. 
So Michael Jackson meant sales for media outlets, big sales for media outlets. And think about this. If you have a choice between a positive Michael Jackson story and a negative Michael Jackson story, which do you think is going to get the greatest number of readers? Probably the negative. <laughs> yeah, probably the negative. Exactly. So there's another story that helps illuminate this situation that Michael was in. I had a client named Billy Joel. And Billy Joel and I both loved to trade information on our motorcycles. We were both motorcycle fetishists. One day, Billy was riding his motorcycle out on Long Island, doing the 40 miles an hour. That's the speed limit. He was coming to a green light. Now, what do you do when you come to a green light? You go through it, right? Which means that the person catty corner to him had a red light. What do you do on a red light? You stop, right? So Billy was traveling at normal speed, intending to go through the green light, as you are supposed to. The car coming from this direction ignored the red light and went out into the lane to turn left. It was too late for Billy. Billy applied his brakes. It was too late for his brakes to have any substantial impact. He hit the car. He flew over the car, landed on the other side. The 27-year-old woman driving the car ran out. She was in great distress. She thought she had killed this poor, innocent man. He had to be medevaced to Lenox Hill Hospital. They thought he was going to lose his right hand. And remember, Billy Joel is a piano man. That's why he wrote that song. He is most alive when he is performing with that piano for an audience. And you need two hands to do that. So we were about to lose a cultural treasure because of this driver. And then the driver apparently went to his attorney and her attorney. And apparently her attorney said, look, you know, you don't understand. You've just had an accident with a superstar. And he is worth a fortune. And it is very important for him not to have negative press. So if you threaten to sue him for hitting you, he'll have to give you a quarter of a million dollars to buy your silence. So, of course, we're going to take him to court. And she got her $250,000 settlement. So imagine Michael never had a childhood. When he was six years old, he started rehearsing with his brothers. From the time he was nine years old, he was on stage in front of large audiences, meeting people like the Queen of England. That's how Michael spent his childhood. Now, I had a friend, a researcher named Jak Pangsa, and in his research with mice, when they are children, they play with each other. If you isolate a mouse so it can't play during that period of its life, and then you let it back into the group later in life, it is suffering play deprivation. It needs to put in that same amount of time at play that it missed as a youngster. So Michael was suffering childhood deprivation. That's why he loved kids. He absolutely adored kids. Look, one of the things we haven't gotten into, but it's the most astonishing thing of all about Michael, is he had a quality. Remember the second law of science? First is the truth at any price, including the price of your life. The second is look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. Michael had a quality of awe and wonder unlike anything I had ever seen. It awed me. Here was the second law of science come alive. The law of awe, wonder, curiosity, and surprise. And Michael felt that he had gotten these qualities as a gift from God. 
And because it was a gift from God, it was his obligation to give awe, wonder, and curiosity to his kids. And the most important meeting that I ever had with Michael started at four o'clock one afternoon when I got a call saying, you've got to be out here by 11 o'clock tonight. Michael is canceling his tour. And that would have been the victory tour, right? Yes, exactly. I kept a little red nylon knapsack behind my desk because I got these calls often. And it had a toothbrush, a razor, and a spare shirt. So, and a, a TRS-1000 computer, the very first laptop computer. So I grabbed my little red knapsack and told my receptionist to get me a flight and headed to L.A. And when I got to L.A., I went to the, got a rental car and I drove to the location that I'd been given. And it turned out to be a giant studio lot. And studio lots are covered with these aircraft hangar sized buildings. And only one of them was lit. And that was the one the Jacksons were in. And they had a 110 foot stage and they were rehearsing on it for the first time. They were rehearsing for the tour. So I waited until the rehearsal was over and we all went out to a little dressing room trailer. Do you know what those are? They're, they, they contain a dressing room, but they are a trailer. And there were two banquettes of seats parallel to each other on the sides. And then there was a little tiny banquette next to the entrance. And that was the throne. So Michael took the throne. I took the seat immediately to his left side, his non-threatening side. And the brothers sat crowded around us. And Michael explained why there had been so much bad publicity. Remember, the press, not only did they talk about the predatory nature of contracts, the press said, Nobody we know has been hired to build the stage. Nobody we know has been hired to do the lighting. Nobody we know has been hired for security. And we know all the best people in the business. So obviously this tour is going to be amateur. The stage is going to collapse. The lighting system is going to electrocute the sound system. The lighting system is going to collapse on the heads of the audience. And gangs are going to be running down the aisles with knives in their hands. Don't dare take your kids. Now, all of this was false. But I found out why the tour had been open for these accusations. Michael explained that his brother Jackie had just had surgery, arthroscopic surgery for a bone chip in his knee. I knew that. I had been out in California doing the press conference with the doctors. They expected his knee to heal in three weeks. It wasn't healed yet. His brother Jackie, he said, was the best dancer and choreographer he had ever seen in his life. And then he explained, a year ago, he said, I hired the most amazing people you can imagine to build my stage, to do my lighting, to do my security. And I made every one of them sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, an agreement to absolute secrecy. Why? Because God gave me this gift of surprise and awe and wonder. And it is my job to give that quality of awe, wonder and surprise to my kids. So I wanted this whole tour to be a surprise. And if my brother Jackie can't dance, then I cannot deliver the level of awe, wonder, and surprise that I owe to my kids. And when he was saying this, Elise, I've had a number of visions in my life and every single one of them has come true. But they haven't had a visual component. This was the first time I had a visual vision. And I saw Michael's ribs as golden gates. And I saw them open while he was talking to me. And I saw 10,000 kids 
inside of him, his kids. And remember, the first law of science is the truth at any price, including the price of your life. There was no way he was going to let anybody diminish the quality of awe, wonder, and surprise he owed to those kids. His whole being was wrapped up in giving that quality of awe, wonder, and surprise. That's what he was. That's why he was the first and second law of science, incarnate, come alive in human form to me. But sometimes when I know a truth, I can be as prophetic. I can speak with the same kind of power that Michael was speaking with. And believe me, he was speaking with awesome power that came out of the quality of his love for his kids, his utter commitment to them. And I explained why the press on the tour had been so negative so far and how if Michael cancels, it would validate all the claims to amateurishness that have been made against this tour. And parents would not dare allow their kids to come to this tour. And Michael would not be able to deliver what he had been working so hard for, for a year to make this tour absolutely spectacular. And Michael and I both are people who, when you know a truth, it comes oozing out of every pore of you. So Michael said, okay, I won't cancel the tour. But the experience of seeing the power of his commitment to his kids, the power of his commitment to awe, wonder, and surprise was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had in my life. And remember, I've worked with some of the most important people of our time, all the way from Queen to Buzz Aldrin. And Michael was so far beyond, if you piled three of these people on top of each other, these truly special people like Prince, like Bob Marley, you might get to a Michael Jackson. So Michael, here I have been given a mandate at the age of 10 to go after courage, the first law of science, the truth at any price, including the price of your life, and awe, wonder, and surprise, the second law of science. Look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. And Michael had set a standard for both those things, commitment to a truth, commitment to awe, wonder, and surprise, so far beyond anything I had even imagined that he had set basically a new standard for the perceptual envelope of humankind. Well, I cannot agree more with your sentiments there, Howard. I love everything you're saying. I am. I feel like I am in the moment and back in the victory era and uh, in this scene with you. It's just absolutely incredible. And um, thank you for talking, Michael, into continuing with the tour. A lot of us are grateful for that. Howard, thank you so much. You are giving us such incredible insight and really laying the groundwork for what would be the start of so much predatory and sensationalist journalism that would end up plaguing Michael Jackson for the rest of his life and incredible insight into who he really was as an artist. I think that what you're saying taps exactly into what means so much to so many fans of Michael Jackson and the Jackson family. Um, So thank you for that. You've just worded it absolutely beautifully. Before we move on, do you have any other comments upon that meeting? We'd love to hear them. Well, I want to tell you a story 
about a guy named Roger Bannister and show you how it relates to Michael. In 1954, not only had nobody ever run a mile in four minutes or less, but all of the experts, the physiologists, said it was impossible to run a mile faster than four minutes, to break the four-minute mile, it was called. Roger Bannister was a medical student. He had a friend who was a medical student. The two of them made films of his running, and they analyzed the film to find every little move that wasted energy and train Roger in correcting that move. And all and and through a year of this process, Roger Bannister finally ran a mile in less than four minutes. If you look at Google and you look up the four minute mile, it will tell you that today every reasonably competitive runner breaks the four minute mile. Once it's been done the first time, you have expanded the perceptual envelope of humanity. You have expanded the capacity of human powers. Michael's quality of awe, wonder, surprise, and utter commitment, total commitment to his kids is a Roger Bannister. It, if we can understand just how deeply these things went and how Michael came the closest I've ever seen to seeing the infinite in the tiniest of things, if we can comprehend that, that can up our level of expectation and our level of wonder, awe, and commitment. There's another story. I had a, a musician at one point named Bill Chinnick. This is while I was running a public and artist relations department for ABC's 14 record companies, whatever it was. And Bill Chinnick was a very undistinguished artist. He didn't have a particularly good voice. His songs were not particularly good, but there was something very special about his guitar work. And Bill told the following story. When he was a kid, he listened to Les Paul records and loved them. The guy who invented the electric guitar. And he sat there for three years with a guitar in his hand, listening to Les Paul record after Les Paul record, trying to play like Les Paul. And finally, after years of bloodying his fingers with this effort, he managed to play like Les Paul. So one day, Bill Chinnick was playing a small club in New Jersey, and there was a little old man in the back of the audience. And when the show was over, the little old man came up to the foot of the stage and said, son, how did you do that? Because Bill could pack more notes into a second than you ever heard in your life. And Bill Chinnick said, well, sir, uh, I grew up listening to Les Paul. And the little old man said, I am Les Paul. Don't you realize I invented eight track taping? In other words, the records that Bill was trying to imitate were based on eight Les Pauls not just one, and yet Bill Chinnick became capable of living up to that standard. Michael sets a whole new standard for commitment, wonder, awe, and astonishment. And you'll read more about it in the book, more than we have time to go into here. And I want you to understand, Michael, because I want you to incorporate the standards he set in your life and in the lives of your kids when you have them. So that they, so that what is beyond possibility in our lifetime becomes normal for the lives of our kids. What I'm trying to achieve is setting a new standard the way that Les Paul set a standard for Bill Chinnick 
and Bill Chinook followed it, even though it was humanly impossible. The way that Roger Bannister set a new standard for running, and then it became ordinary. It became part of our daily reality. I want Michael's standard of all wonder, surprise, and commitment to expand the perceptual envelope of humanity. And I've done my best in this book to try to get you to see who and what Michael was in a whole new way. And I'm mortal and I have limitations. So all I can do is my best, but I have done everything in my power to give you who Michael really was. And you do it so well, Howard, you really do. There are just amazing stories in the book. You get into much more detail about Michael's influences, you know, his whole quest to study the greats and become greater, like you were just talking about. It really is an inspiring uh, book and has some very, very powerful and moving sections. I'd love to ask you a few uh, specific questions um, related to the years that you did work with the Jackson family. And just to lay out the chronology for listeners to be sure we're all on the same page. So you met the brothers in late 1983. It would be a few months later that you met Michael and then the Victory Tour launched in mid-1984. You were there at those Victory Tour shows quite frequently. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like being there. And then I would also like to um, talk about one question that kind of comes up among fans. Looking at the Victory album, you know, it's a great album. There are quite a few solo tracks on that album where Michael is not singing. And then on the Victory tour, there also was a mini solo set by Jermaine. So the question around this is, did you pick up any tension at all between the brothers on the tour, perhaps around them wanting to spread their own wings, that sort of thing? Was that something that you noticed at all in your time touring with them? Well, when it came to the the brothers, to, to Jackie, Randy, Tito, and Marlon, they were a very coherent family. And they loved Michael deeply, deeply. But Jermaine was a whole different topic. Jermaine... One day we were doing a photo shoot about 110 miles north of L.A. It was on a beach. It was a little park. And there were these two bare wood rail fences, like ranch fences, going down through the green to the edge of the beach. And the brothers had their trailers. And Jermaine had a separate trailer. And that was always the way things were. Jermaine was not one of the brothers. He simply wasn't. I mean, biologically, yes, he came from the same mother. But no, he was a separate person. And yes, he was trying to establish his solo personality. But I never saw any friction. I never saw any friction. And I don't even know if Michael had had his own trailer. He must have for a simple reason. Even though we were way, way out in nowhere, kids were congregating by these two rail wood fences, actually by just one of them. And Michael spent the entire time we were there with those kids. And Michael got the childhood he'd been missing by loving kids and loving, delighting them. And this brings up the question of Michael's sleepovers. At most, I had one friend at a time. It was the most exciting thing in the world. We could have lay there on our beds talking until dawn, and we probably did. Well, Michael loved that excitement. And Michael 
would have kids over for this kind of sleepover. But you have to understand something about Michael's bedroom. Michael's bedroom was not a private place. You and I are accustomed to being able to close the door and it's just us and we can do anything we want. Not Michael. When it came time for Michael and Lionel Richie to write We Are the World, Lionel told me this story because he was another client of mine. Where did they do it? Where did they choose to write this song? In Michael's bedroom, on the floor, like kids. So Lionel is sitting there trading lyrics with Michael, and all of a sudden Lionel feels eyeballs locking on his eyeballs right next to his head at a level only a foot and a half off the floor. He turns his head very, very slowly to the right, and what does he see? A pair of eyeballs locked on him. It is Michael's pet snake muscles. The point of the story is Michael's bedroom was not a private place. When it came to touring, we would take over the top two floors of the ritziest hotel in whatever city we were touring in. I mean, you need to comfort yourself and baby yourself when you're touring because you're up against a very, very hard, almost impossible human schedule. And that's true whether you're Bob Seger or John Mellencamp or whoever you are. And Michael would have the room right in the center, near the elevators. And his brothers would have the rooms around it. And Michael would have a woman in her 40s. She was gorgeous. She was the mother of three kids. She had permission from her husband to come and travel with Michael, because that's what made Michael comfortable. And there were no groupies. I mean, with rock and roll tours, there were groupies all over the place. There were no drugs. The brothers, there was very little moving around in the corridor. You know, at two o'clock at night, when you finish that damn show, which takes all the energy you've got, especially if Michael is your leader, you are exhausted. There were no people in the corridors. There were no kids. The only thing going on in the corridor was that there was a organic chef making food. Now, that may sound like a luxury. It is not. When I finished my press conferences and got back to the hotel at two in the morning, knowing I have to get up again at eight in the morning, the only source, there's no room service at two in the morning. The only source of food is going to be that organic chef out in the hallway. And it may be that I missed whatever actual social interaction was going on because it was probably going on in that hour after they all got back to the hotel and I was giving a press conference back at whatever stadium. We were in. So I probably missed a lot. But the brothers loved Michael. They got along together perfectly naturally, as if they had been getting along together all their lives, which they probably have. Jermaine, a whole different topic. He was on his own planet, on his own island. Well, that's all your insights again are are incredibly helpful. May I ask, what were those press conferences like after each show? What were you saying to all these journalists? Well, I was trying to give them a whole bunch of material that they could write up, positive material. I mean, look, I've worked with some of the most astonishing performers of the last 50 years. Prince, John Mellencamp, Joan Jett, Billy Idol. These people come alive on stage as fireballs, absolute fireballs. And each one of them is totally unique. And each show takes your breath away, Elise. 
but Michael does an entirely different kind of performance than I had ever seen before. Michael works out and choreographs every single move, every move, and every night he delivers those moves as if he has never done them before in his life. He delivers them with an absolute energy, an absolute assertion that I've never seen anything like in my life. So while these other performers have different shows from night to night, they never know what the spirit is going to move them to do. And it moves them to do some very astonishing things. They have a rough choreography worked out, but within that, they have a lot of wiggle room. Michael does not, look, it's hard for me to talk about him in the past tense, at least. Michael does not leave any room for wiggles because he is trying to give you absolutely the most amazing performance he can with every second of his performance on stage. And I saw something like 70 performances, probably more like 50, because eventually whoever it was that was doing all this malevolent stuff that I was on to him and got me tossed off the tour. Um, absolutely amazing. So the press conferences, the press wasn't after anything mean or dirty. They took notes on everything I told them. It took about an hour to give them all of my notes. And then we all went back to our hotel rooms to eat and sleep. The malevolence didn't really begin until I was long gone from the scene, around 1991, I think it was, or so, when the first woman discovered how much money she could get by making horrible accusations against Michael. And then once somebody has done it, everybody does it. It's like the Roger Bannister effect. And so woman after woman, yes, Michael loved kids. No doubt about it. Did he love kids sexually? Nobody will ever know. Nobody will ever know. Well, yeah. So on that front, I would love to touch on that just for a moment. So, you know, as part of the fan community, it has been challenging following Michael Jackson since the early 90s with this, of course, range of terrible, terrible allegations that have surfaced over the course of 30 years. In your book, you do a marvelous job in one chapter of summarizing the 1993 allegations. It's the kind of chapter I want to like give to anyone who just asks me about it because it's a great summation <laughs> of the whole issue. And you really just break it down in a way that makes a lot of sense. And I would like, if I may, just to read a few lines actually from that chapter that I found really powerful called Michael Jackson's Sexual Crucification. And it reads, Manufacturing sexual allegations against Michael Jackson became a cottage industry. Parents, attorneys, former employees, and one prosecutor, Santa Barbara County District Attorney Tom Sneddon, made their fame and fortune off of Michael Jackson's sexual crucifixion. A crucifixion that destroyed Michael's health, crippled his career, turned him into a prescription drug addict, and ultimately snuffed out one of the brightest lights this planet has ever seen. That's very powerful. And so I'm wondering, in light of everything that you've said in this discussion already, and looking at this past year with the release of the film Leaving Neverland, Michael Jackson's legacy has come under terrible attack again. Do you have any particular take on this latest round of allegations, knowing who Michael was? To me, the allegations sounded very credible. A bunch of fans really went to town and took them apart and demonstrated that it's very easily that these are implanted memories. I have a friend named Elizabeth Loftus, 
She's the leading memory researcher in the world. And her research has shown that you can induce false memories. For example, she brought a bunch of college kids in, subjects, and showed them a foot film. Now, she took half of them, and afterwards she asked them questions. When the blonde driver was coming down the road past the barn, did she hit the tractor or did the tractor hit her? And other people, they just left alone. And then three weeks later, they brought in the group that they left alone, and they brought in the kids that they had quizzed after the film. And the kids they had quizzed remembered a blonde driver. And guess what? The driver had been a brunette. They remembered the barn. They could picture these things vividly. But there had been no barn. It had been an empty field. The kids who hadn't been given these cues through questions remembered the film accurately. But the kids who had been given these subtle cues through questioning remembered the cues, not the film. And when they were shown the film, some of them said, but that's not the film I saw. Well, they were wrong. That was precisely the film that they saw. There was a movement in the 1980s and 1990s that said, we've all been sexually abused. The biggest clue to the fact that you've been sexually abused is if you can't remember it. Because if you can't remember your sexual abuse, it means that it was so horrible that you've totally repressed it. The psychologists, the psychotherapists who were into this craze were busy coercing their clients into having memories of being sexually abused. And some of their clients took their fathers to court. But it was, who was sinning here? Well, remember, the, for, the first rule of science is the truth at any price, including the price of your life. The psychiatrists, the psychologists were sinning against the truth and implanting false memories. And that could easily be the case with these very credible sounding people in Leaving Neverland. I found that film personally, I, didn't, I couldn't watch it. I normally don't get the time to watch films because I'm working all the time. But I couldn't have watched it because it would have upset me too much. And I read the press about it and that was extremely upsetting to me. Because to me, it's not too much to say that to me, Michael Jackson is a god. To me, Michael Jackson, I've been told not to say this, but it's true. To me, Michael Jackson is the closest thing to a saint or an angel that I will ever, ever have the opportunity to meet for the reasons that I've given you, because he sets a whole new standard for awe, wonder, and commitment. No, I will not let anybody snatch that from me. So I'm biased on this issue, but I do not believe in the allegations, even though I know I will never know the answer. Howard, I'd like to take one more break to tell our listeners about the MJ Cast Shop, which is a new addition to our show this season. As listeners know, all of our content, including fan chat about Michael Jackson news and extensive interviews with a wide range of Jackson collaborators, is always free. Some podcasts do things like create Patreon accounts with episodes exclusively available to paying members, and I completely get that. However, we've decided that we want our shows to be available to everyone, so we've never gone that route. That said, the show is not free for us to produce. Server costs, equipment, and more all add up. And over the course of six seasons, they've gotten expensive. So this season, we've finally been able to launch an exciting project that gives listeners a way to support the show while also getting something fun in return. 
The MJCast shop offers an array of designs, all created by the wonderful Jamin Bull, which can be placed on products of your choice, from t-shirts to tote bags to water bottles, even stickers. We have our classic MJCast logo design, and also great text designs like the Jackson Brothers names and my personal favorite, the Captain EO characters names. We also have a fantastic retro Jackson's design that you won't find anywhere else. Many friends of our show have been sporting their MJ Cass gear lately. For example, Jenkins from Moonwalk Talks even wore his MJ Cass logo shirt in his most recent online MJ DJ party. Thanks so much, Jenkins. To check out our shop, just go to the mjcast.com slash shop. We've got products at every price point and all revenue goes to help support our show running costs as well as to make charity donations. Thanks to all of you who have purchased from us already. It truly does make a difference. Now let's get back to our chat with Howard. So Howard, thank you again for that assessment of Leaving Neverland. I think a lot of fans will really agree with you and and value your insights into that. With everything you've said in mind, now you ended, actually you left the music industry in the late 80s. If hypothetically, you had continued as a publicist in the music world and had continued working with Michael Jackson through the 1993 allegations. How might you have handled that? Do you have any ideas about what you would have done as a publicist to help correct that narrative? Could you have had any impact on that? Uh, I could have tried. Um, I was considered a master of crisis management, which is why I kept that little red knapsack behind my desk for emergencies of this kind. And generally, the way to get rid of a false story is to find the truth. And I mean, one day, for example, when the Jacksons were playing the Meadowlands, which is reasonably near my home, maybe 30 miles away, it's a New York City location. I went into the Helmsley Palace where they were staying. And as soon as I walked into the doors of the hotel, I was grabbed by some of the members of Michael's entourage. And they said, you've got to get involved immediately. The New York Post, is about to run a story saying that the Jackson's bodyguards beat them up. And so my first step was to find out what the incident was so I could tell the truth. Well, it turned out the story went something like this. The Jacksons, in, in those days, everybody used limousines, stretch limousines. So the Jacksons had a bunch of stretch limousines lined up outside the hotel. And then they had something that looked more like a laundry van. And they sent out all the stretch limousines with nobody in them to decoy the press because there was a press mob staking out the place, the hotel, in order to get pictures of Michael Jackson. And then they got into the laundry van and they headed over to uh, 10th or 11th Avenue to head to the Meadowlands. Well, one reporter had an inkling that this is what they were doing. And so instead of following the stretch limousines, a photographer and a reporter in a car for the New York Post started to follow the Jackson's van. The Jackson's van took a left on 11th Avenue, which is a divided highway. It has a divider and all the traffic coming from the other direction is segregated and all the traffic coming from this direction is segregated. The reporter and photographer started to act as if this were an episode of a chase in a chase movie. They were doing everything in their power to get to nudge past the Jacksons so that they could go catty corner to the Jacksons, stopping all the traffic so they could stop the Jacksons so they could get a picture. And everything they did failed to work because the Jacksons people were LAPD people and they were well trained in stunt driving of this kind. So finally, 
the reporter and photographer, jumped the divider into the lanes of oncoming traffic. It's a Sunday. They could have killed families, entire families. Got ahead of the Jacksons, jumped the divider again, and then went catty corner to them to stop all the traffic, including the Jacksons. Now, the Jackson security guards explained that Michael gets 300 death threats a day. And we have to determine which of those are for real and which are not. So when an unmarked car pulls off maneuvers like this with us, we have no idea of who is in that car and what their intention is. So one of the Jackson's guards, bodyguards, security guys, picked up a tire iron and walked out to see who these guys were and to get them out of the way because they were stopping traffic. The two guys jumped out of their car to get pictures, and as soon as they saw the tire iron, one of them jumped back into the car, got a gun. He got a gun. And then they went home to write a story saying that they had been intimidated by the Jackson security guards for no reason whatsoever, carrying a tire iron and threatening them. I got all the information. It took a half an hour to talk to every single person who had been involved in this incident and get the story straight. Remember, you counter falsehoods with truth. I had the number of a, a country club where the owner of the New York Post was golfing. And I called him and said, you're about to run a story saying that the Jackson's security people attacked your people with tire irons. The story's far worse than that. One of your people is carrying a gun and he's already been arrested for carrying a gun once. And they were threatening the Jacksons. So if you run this story, I'm going to give the actual story to all the rest of the people in the press, and it's going to make you look really, really bad. So pull that false story. And he did. Wow. Now, admittedly, I did not do all of this on my own. The people in the entourage had different pieces of information. For example, God knows who had the phone number for the country club, where the New York Post's major guy, owner, was playing. I didn't have that. So I had lots of help. But we stopped the story. And all I can tell you is, with the same attitude, and with my absolute gut-deep belief in Michael Jackson and his importance as a cultural monument, there is a chance we could have stopped it. But you never really know, Elise. Sometimes you're up against forces like that extra 50,000 in sales that the Boston Herald had. You're up against forces that you cannot stop. I do everything in my power to stop evil things. And I have felt up until 2009 when Michael died, I felt it took me 15 years of processing to realize why I had said yes to the brothers and what they had really wanted from me. And it was to save Michael's soul. And I failed. I failed. Michael Jackson was on this planet for 50 years. For 25 years, he was becoming Michael Jackson. For 25 years, he was dangling on the cross. That crucifixion that you were referring to. And I had not been able to fulfill my mission for them. And I felt the obligation to absolve Michael. Even though I was full time in my science again, and it is an immersion so deep that it takes all of my waking hours, seven days a week, I still felt this obligation to Michael. And I still felt the need 
to get back with him and have further conversations. Because, Elise, this is going to sound incredibly egomaniacal. I don't feel there was anybody who was as capable of understanding Michael as I was, and that made the obligation on me all the more absolute. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. And yeah, we I wish you could have been there during his toughest days. Maybe you could have made a difference. But I know you were going through your own <laughs> crisis as well. But I, I would have loved to, but I really needed to get back to my science. Yes. Well, for me, this was the voyage of the Beagle. You know, Charles Darwin <laughs> signed up as the naturalist on a ship. And for five years, he adventured in South America because this ship was exploring the coast of South America. Even without the South American cowboys are known to be twice as good as North American cowboys. They're called gauchos. And he even went out riding with the gauchos and he even participated in a revolution. So my voyage of the Beagle was going into the music industry, a field I knew nothing about. And I did find the dark underbelly where new myths and movements are made. And I did find the kind of ecstatic experience that is shaped into the forces of history. And yes, I ended up working with uh, the founding of Farm Aid, giving Amnesty International visibility in North America. I worked with the United Fund. We must have signed up at least 50,000 or more voters on the Jackson tour. So... The forces of history and music are very tightly interwoven, very tightly interwoven. Absolutely. Um, and I will encourage anyone who is thinking about buying the book. Um, there is the, the story, I think, of getting the voter registration going at the tour is quite interesting. And that's detailed in your book as well, um, along with many other stories. I do want to ask, speaking of this dark underbelly, you've mentioned, you know, this evil force in the music industry, this person who was doing a lot of terrible things. Are you able to name that person or do we have to read the book to find out? Well, for one thing, uh, once upon a time, Randy Newman wrote a song, Short People. And uh, Short People says they have tiny little feet and tiny little eyes and they walk around telling great big lies. That song was allegedly written about a very specific person in the music industry. And his name is Irving Azoff. And he is brilliant. And I learned from Irving that if you really want to be a villain, it helps to be brilliant. But what Irving is utterly lacking in is a moral compass. He has no moral compass. People like David Geffen hate him because David Geffen, Geffen helped him get his start. He gave Irving what would become Irving's biggest band, the Eagles. And he basically says, I can't stand him because he's so morally corrupt. That's a paraphrase of what he's saying. So I admire Irving Azoff because he is brilliant, but he's a villain. And he helped crucify Michael Jackson. And how could anyone ever forgive him for that? I agree. And you go into more detail about that as well in your book, which maybe I'll let people read about. But I really do admire Howard, your dedication to finding people's, many people's, Michael Jackson's, of course, but all the artists you work with, finding their authentic story. That was core to all you did, which comes through so clearly and strongly. Um, and I think was why you had the success you did, you know, because it was about finding those organic truths, which of course go back to your life as a scientist as well, which I think is 
really compelling and interesting. I do want to ask you one question, which of course you've answered in probably in many ways throughout this wonderful discussion, but it is a question that we like to ask all of our special guests. So if you could sum it down (laughs) to the core essence, I would like to ask you, Howard Bloom, how should Michael be remembered? He should be remembered as the living incarnation of the first law of science, the truth at any price, including the price of your life, and awe, wonder, and surprise, the second law of science. Look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. William Blake, the poet, talks about seeing the world in a grain of sand and infinity in an hour. Blake is very compelling in the way he talks about seeing the infinite in the tiniest of things. Michael is the person who saw more of the infinite in the smallest, tiniest things than anyone I have ever met in my life and is so far beyond any human that I've ever met, despite spending a life among remarkable humans, that it utterly defies belief. And as I said, it sets an entirely new standard for the perceptual envelope of humanity. Very well said. I love that. Going to the publication of your book, just briefly, I would, because I'm a book person, I would love to just hear about how that experience has been, especially considering that you have published uh, seven books, I believe, at this point already. This book, though, is a little bit different than what you've done before. Did you find that there were any challenges or benefits to having Michael Jackson's name in the title? Did that affect the process for you? And what has this experience of publishing this book been like in comparison to your previous books? Well, it's been very hard. I made a list of 24 agents and every single one of them turned me down. And one of them said, why don't you sell this book yourself and look for a specialty publisher? So I made a list of about 120 editors who covered things somewhere in the vague territory of this book. And I went after all of them. And I only found one that was interested. And that's the editor I'm working with. And that's the publishing house I'm working with, Roman and Littlefield. And they've been very, very good to me. But this has been rolling a stone up the mountain inch by inch by inch. I am convinced that this book has deep truths. I am convinced of that, at least. I do my best to put deep truths into every book I write, and writing about my rock and roll adventures gives me a whole different way of showing truths of that kind. And so I have just kept going on this book, period, no matter what kind of obstacles I've run into. Well, I wish you ever success with it. It is a great book. Again, for our listeners, the title is Einstein, Michael Jackson and Me, A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll. It has amazing stories in it. It is available at this point anywhere books are sold, as well as an audiobook out at some point. We're not quite sure when yet that just happened. So congratulations on that, Howard. And Howard, where can people if they want to learn more about what you do? And I know you make lots of interesting commentary on current affairs and everything. Where can they find you online to learn about all that? Howardbloom.net. And the place to get books these days is Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or Bookshop. What is it called? Bookshop.org or something like that. Yes, which actually supports independent booksellers. Yay. (laughs) Exactly. Because bookstores are closed right now. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, we'll have to get it online, but you can still get a hard copy. It's a beautiful book. And yeah, so Howard, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great discussion. I've enjoyed it so much. Um, You can find links to more information in our show notes as always. And please do remember that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on any app such as Apple Podcasts, Podcast Republic or Google Podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram under the MJ cast and we will be back again soon with a new episode in the meantime thank you so much for listening to this wonderful discussion and stay bad